we're using a computer and we're using Adobe Premiere. Program would crash on us Ooh. all the time. By the time we're literally five, six hours away from the premiere, and we don't even have a copy of the movie to show because <laughs> it kept bombing out on us. Movies and sports. Two things that I feel I'm constantly surrounding myself with. That plus a duty as an Assyrian American to vote. All of these things led me to interviewing Billy Haydu, who digs a productive hand into all of those things. Hello, it's John, back from Chicago. Billy and I began briefly discussing the Assyrian Athletic Club, something that would have probably got me out of the house a lot more had I known about it sooner. Then we dove into Billy's involvement in his community, formerly Niles and currently Skokie, Illinois, and how serving his community, which consists of so many Assyrians, helped lead to the creation of Vote Assyrian. Billy Haydu is listed as executive producer on four Assyrian films, including 2016's Basemtet Risha, and he's always encouraging the next Assyrian filmmaker to step up and make something new. If there's anything I learned from Billy is that if there's an itch to do something meaningful and worthwhile, scratch it. Or to borrow from Nike, just do it. Special thank you, of course, to Tony Kalagarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York for sponsoring this episode. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847 847- 982-9516. Billy, I want to thank you so much. It's a Sunday afternoon. The Bears have not kicked off yet, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Uh, you're very much into sports, into the athletic scene, especially when it comes to Assyrians. Uh, so my question is, how did the Assyrian Athletic Club come into existence? So the Assyrian Athletic Club actually was started as wing bowl soccer in 1970 by a few individuals, um, Raymond Oshana, Ahani Baba, um, Freddie Daniel, and I'm pretty sure I'm missing the fourth person. But it was four individuals who, who came here and started a soccer program. It was actually uh, located out of the AAA AAA in, on Devon Avenue. Um, out of that organization, they were members of that organization. They had a soccer team. And in 1985, they spun off and became their own organization. And um, so since then, since 85, so we actually say our history goes back to 1970. 1970. Wow. So, so what is your years. current involvement with the athletic club? Um, I'm a board of director right now. I was the previous president a few years ago. And um, my term came up and uh, we picked uh, a very young, energetic young lady, Movina Lazar. And uh, she's been kind of at the helm of the organization for the last couple of years. And uh, it's been fun, fun watching that younger generation kind of lead the way. That's always a good, a good sight to see for the next generation to step right in naturally and then maybe even provide something that uh, the, you know, the previous generations didn't, some more innovation. So what sports leagues are set up under the athletic club umbrella? So it's basketball, soccer, and volleyball right now. Uh, we had softball. It's the program still exists. It's a, it's a team or two that we used to sponsor. Um, we haven't done it as of late because of you know economic reasons. 
but those are primarily this primarily the sports softball okay. and basketball. So it started off as just a soccer club and now there's basketball and volleyball. So how does that work out? There's obviously different seasons for volleyball, different seasons for basketball. How is that set up throughout the calendar year? It's actually year round. We don't oh, stop. Okay. Yeah. We we play Excellent. inside. Yeah, it's year round. Um, you know, they're league by leagues, uh, you know, 10 week, 11 week seasons for each of the sports. And um, we try to have three three leagues per season in each of the sports. And how does somebody join the Assyrian Athletic Club? Is there some type of membership, some type of initiation process that they have to go through? It's secretive. No, it's, I'm just <laughs> is there a, uh, is there yeah, a handshake yeah, to get yeah, in? It's a very, very, yeah, very nice handshake. But uh, no, actually, um, to, to be a member of the actual organization, um, there, there is, it's a $120 annual membership fee per person. Um, but as far as participants and playing in the sports, uh, every sport pretty much promotes their promotes themselves through our website as well as their own websites. Each of our uh, programs has their own websites. Basketball has its own. Um, volleyball has its own. And um, so they pretty much promote when the league starts, when the next league is starting, if anyone's interested. And uh, kind of sign up and, and they, we do a draft or some kind of open gym where people come out and, and get to participate and see who gets picked up on what team. And you've held official positions, not just within like the sports realm of the Assyrian community, but you kind of give back in the towns that you've lived in, both Niles and Skokie. Uh, give us some of the background of what you've done for both townships of, of Niles and Skokie. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I started in Skokie as a community relations commissioner. Um, it was about maybe five or six of us. Um, the mayor of Niles uh, graciously uh, appointed me to that position. It was the first position I've ever taken outside the Assyrian community when it comes to to governance per se. Um, so it was it was it was interesting. It was fun. I got to learn a lot. I was there for about two years. I had, had two appointments, and then I moved to Skokie. And as soon as I moved to Skokie, I kind of understood the concept of, of of these positions. I went and set up a meeting with a couple of friends and we ended up meeting with the mayor's office and they were very eager and excited to have more Assyrian involvement in the village. And I was appointed to the Economic Development Commission there. So you work in IT full time, you take up positions within the towns of Skokie and Niles. What kind of motivated you to already take a, a full workload? And we'll get into what you do in a little bit, but uh, to actually give back to these towns. And what kind of motivates you to do all of that? Um, first of all, it was experience. I wanted to get the experience and see what this is like. Um, we've had people in these positions before. Um, you know, I've always been a proponent of being in charge of an organization or being involved in something and teaching the next generation and, and getting them involved from the beginning so that it's a smooth transition. I'm not a believer of sitting in a position for 22 years, you know, which we have some organizations, unfortunately, in our community who've had pretty much the same leadership structure for a very long time. Uh, I like to move on to bigger and better things until there's nothing bigger and better than I can just sit home and retire. <laughs> um, so from that regard, I, that's really one of the key motivating factors for me to get involved in these things because I want to learn and be able to pass this along to, to, to someone else as I can continue moving forward. Do you feel like there is a, not necessarily a void, but more so like a demand for the younger generation to do what you do in these positions? Is there like a mentorship type of program that, that people are seeking out? I mean, there's nothing official. There's no mentorship thing. But from my perspective, I'm always, I'm always an open door in that way. If anyone ever wants to sit down and, and kind of, you know, we'll get into Vodasurian, which is kind of what kind of leads to that. But um, 
you know, honestly, it's just the, the, the younger generation, this is for them, in, in all honesty, it is for the younger generation. Now that I have children, I actually do look towards the future and what we can do today. You know, one thing our parents did that was great is they kept us a Syrian. You know, we came to this country as immigrants and, 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 and you know, this whole kind of being entrenched in this melting pot and not assimilating as quickly as other ethnicities. That's one thing our, our parents' generation did very well. Uh, they kept organizations open. They kept us involved culturally in the church and in things like that, which was great. But now it's our generation's turn to continue that, but now add the next level to get our children better than we were. And you mentioned the next level, which is getting more involved. And you mentioned Voda Syrian, which we'll dive into right now. Uh, what is your involvement with Voda Syrian? And kind of tell us what the entire program is all about. Sure. Uh, I'm a co-founder. Uh, myself and Ramson Benjamin um, kind of sat down. And Ramson Benjamin at the time was the uh, executive director of the Chamber of Commerce, the Assyrian Chamber of Commerce, which was recently started. Um, you know, I always had this idea of, uh, of this Voda Syrian concept, not the name. The name actually is Rain Hanna. Rain Hanna, brilliant, our marketing person at the time, and, and she was one of the original members and person that was uh, involved with us, came up with the, with the name Voda Syrian. One of the guests on the Assyrian podcast yeah. as well, so episode guys, 23, if you want to go back and listen to that one. They, oh, it's Michael Jordan number. It's a great <laughs> episode. Um, but I, would, I probably would probably go listen to that myself. I'd be interested to hear uh, Rain's thoughts. But uh, So, yeah, she came up with the name, and... Um, you know, the idea was to educate the Assyrian public on the importance of voting, as well as educating our political our political candidates as to what the Assyrians need and who we are here in America. That's that was kind of the idea behind it because we lacked a lot of things that just when you talk to a politician or you talk to anyone, they may have heard the word Assyrian. They go, oh, yeah, we've heard of Assyrians. Or if they knew Assyrians, it's because they live in an area where there's a lot of them. But there's just never any knowledge about who we are, what we need, what our needs are. Are we still immigrants? Do we have people coming to this country? There's so much that, you know, it was a learning curve that everyone has to get over. And I think that was kind of the idea behind Vote Assyrian. And um, Ramson being the executive director of the chamber and having the time to do it was a perfect opportunity for me and him to sit down and say, let's, let's get this thing going. I mean, it's since grown a lot since then, but that was kind of the, the idea of, uh, of Voda Syrian or the need for it. So it wasn't so much that these politicians didn't know that they had Assyrian constituents. It's more so they didn't know what the Assyrian constituents wanted. One of the things that opened my mind to this was I was sitting at a uh, meeting for the Economic Development Commission on a Tuesday morning, like eight o'clock in the morning. I'm groggy and I'm exhausted. I did not want to be there. And uh, Howard Meyer, who happens to be the executive chairman of the Skokie Chamber of Commerce, was sitting next to me and said, do you know the largest community in Skokie is Assyrian? I was like, really? Wow. He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, it's kind of embarrassing, me being an Assyrian. I didn't know that. And then later on, I heard from a couple of trustees in the Village of Niles and other individuals, that uh, friends of ours in, in other positions that mentioned that aside from our large population in Skokie, we're probably one of the most centralized group of Assyrians in one area here in Chicago. Uh, because if you look at it, we're really from Rogers Park to Des Plaines. True. I mean, you're talking not a very big, large area, population-wise probably, but we're concentrated in a very small area, Lincolnwood, Skokie, Morton, Grove, and Niles. And, and as well as the other thing that blew my mind is that we're the largest, uh, we have the largest school 
uh, District 219 High School. Uh, Syrians are about 30% of the school. Wow. So, and these are some of the things that kept us motivated with Voter Syrian because we're like, we have zero representation. We don't have employees that work for the village. We have maybe one or one police officer that I know in Skokie, uh, none in Lincolnwood, maybe one in Morton Grove. I don't believe, well, we may have a few in Niles now, but the idea was that we reach out to these guys and say, look, we are now active members in this, in this community and our voice needs to be heard, but we also need to convince our Assyrians sitting at home that their voice is important. Do you think that Assyrians are better representing themselves at the polls now versus four years ago, 10 years ago, in your opinion? Absolutely. I, I really do. Um, and I think that vote Assyrian, as well as some of our churches, actually, uh, you know, I saw something really interesting. We had an Assyrian gentleman running for Congress uh, on a Republican slate. Unfortunately, he came up a little bit short. But um, it was really interesting because I actually saw some of our, uh, you know, some of the bishops in our churches and some of our, uh, our priests actually discussing the importance of, of this. And, and I think it resonated with the people. You know, I, there's, a, there's a stigma to voting. Everybody thinks like, you know, first of all, the funniest thing I heard is, well, if I register to vote, then I'm going to be called to jury duty. <laughs> and I think that's one of the funniest things because jury duty absolutely has nothing to do with that. It's based on your driver's license. Right. If you have a license or an ID, you can be called to jury duty assuming you're a citizen. Um, again, these are just some excuses we've made. And, uh, you know, become, because we're living in Illinois and it's a very democratic, well, democratic heavy state. It is. And it tends to lean more that way. A lot of people say, well, we don't want to vote because, well, we don't want to vote for the Democrat because we're Republican and it doesn't matter who we vote for because the Democrat always wins. Well, I like to step back and say, let's think about more of the local politics, the mayoral races, the trustee races, the school boards, because those will have a m more influence on us on a daily basis than who the president of the country is. Uh, in the last maybe 12, 16 years, it's been a little bit more toward, you know, the president has made an influence on us because of the whole Iraq situation, Middle East situation, per se, Lebanon, Syria, um, and not as much Iran, but in a way Iran too. So it's influenced us that way. But otherwise, it's your local politicians that matter. Every one of us um, has a parent or, or a grandparent who, who uses some social services that are provided either by the federal government or the state. And, um, you know, these can be cut at any point. I mean, we're in Illinois. We're in a situation where, our, you know, we have a pension problem. We have a billion-dollar pension problem. They can't pass budgets, and they cut programs. And if these programs get cut, you would have thousands of Assyrian grandparents or parents who no longer have access to the money they need to do, you know, their home care, for example. Uh, going further, um, you know, uh, school, uh, preschool stuff. There, there's parents who participate in programs like that. So these are the things that influence us on a daily basis. We don't think about them. You know, we have parents that sit at home and they complain about what they're being, their, their children are being taught in school. It's actually very easy to make that change. Run for a board, sit on that board, and make the change. You know, it, it, that's the beauty of this country. And, it, and I kind of say this, and, and I kind of try to teach this to our American candidates. The reason why Assyrians kind of have a problem getting to the polls, our older generation, is we've come from tyrannical governments. We've come from dictatorships. The idea of voting was a joke. I mean, if you didn't vote for, you know, the person who was running at right. that time, you know, let's say, for example, Saddam Hussein, 
your vote probably didn't count. I mean, I've never, yeah, I've never met a candidate who's won 99% of the vote. No one's ever been that loved. So we've come from that background. And because of that, I think one of the reasons why they are there, we're very uh, cynical about it. Everything is a, you know, especially this whole Russia probe thing you're seeing now. It just adds adds to the fuel because everyone thinks that everything is rigged. It's a rigged system everywhere you go. And, you know, it's not necessarily the case. We just have to get out there and, and, and vote Assyrian. I mean, it's funny when people ask, like, what does that mean? And just vote Assyrian. Is there an Assyrian candidate running? No, vote for a candidate who's going to support Assyrians. You know, sometimes we have to walk over those party lines. You know, if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, but there's a candidate on the other end who's going to support more of what you need. Is that not more important to you than it is just to stick to a party line? Because the reality of it is, is we don't have that many powerful Assyrians out there where we're like, oh, no, we have to be Democrats because we have these people representing. We're not there yet. Maybe down the line, but, you know, just vote Assyrian candidates to support us. And I think you touched on some advice that that could probably extend to, you know, in Chicago and Chicagoland, we have a lot of Assyrians, as you mentioned, highly concentrated but in other areas of the country, maybe not so much. But like you said, just because there isn't an Assyrian running or somebody who is Assyrian who wants to run, vote for the person who best represents our interests. And if they don't know what our interests are, educate them. We teach them. them. Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, the, the goal is to take Vote Assyrian and, and make it a national organization. We already have great relationships with our, uh, our friends in, in, uh, in Los Angeles, Southern California, Northern California, uh, Arizona as well. Um, you know, Michigan would be another area we'd love to do it, although the Chaldean community is doing a very good job up there with, with their thing. Um, but uh, we have to grow it. And, and like you said, one thing that just it's kind of actually let me let me say this. One thing that's blown my mind is how interested a lot of these candidates were in what we needed. Um, there's a couple of individuals who just who've blown my mind. These are these are people that are in political positions, very powerful positions in Illinois, that consistently reach out to us and say, "What can we help you with?" They seem to care, and 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 I think that was one of the I guess skeptical things in my mind, which was, "Well, no one cares about us." But the reality of it is, is that there's a lot of people that are like us, that that went through what we did. Now they're at the table. And uh, I always go back to this, you know, if you're at the table, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? So either you're going to be eaten up or you're going to sit there and, and, and you know, <laughs> and, and be a part of the game, and which we need to be, honestly. We have, we have large numbers here, and, and it's very important for, for our people to be at that table. So you do a lot for the community in the political sense and getting uh, youth out and playing sports. But uh, day to day, you work in IT. And we were having a discussion before the podcast even started that you got into comp- you owned a computer before people e- some people even knew what a computer was. Yeah. Uh, what what got you into computers to begin with? Uh, my cousin. And my cousin was into computers and, and you know, we, we spent a lot of time there and playing around and, you know, first opportunity they had, and boy, they were expensive, let me tell you. First opportunity I have to actually own one, I bought a little used computer, it was like a 386 actually, if I remember correctly. And um, then I, you know, bought my own 486, a little bit newer and just just liked computers, liked the idea of being able to do things on them. And uh, it kind of led into a career accidentally. I was a biology major. I was thinking about doing something in the sciences, not, wow. not computer sciences, yeah. but uh, it just it kind of happened. Just the grace of God led me, you know, led me to this specific path. And I ended up being in IT and I've been doing IT in one regard or another since 1997. I can relate. I, as a child, I wanted to be a paleontologist and mm-hmm. dig up 
fossils mm-hmm. and now I'm a podcast host. Yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, it's weird how things work out. It's, yes. it's, it's incredible. As long as you do what you enjoy, I think. At the end so of the you day. find that mixing a passion with day-to-day work that never gets kind of like redundant or like, man, I wish I would have kept this as a hobby. It's actually a fun thing to do on a, a Monday through Friday basis. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I, this is my advice to any young person. And I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of very successful people is do what you love. Because in all honesty, you can find a way of making money and having a career in almost anything you do, especially today. I mean, I grew up in a generation prior to internet, and we're having this conversation prior to the podcast. Um, There are new ways of making money today that if I would have told you this in 1990 or 95, you would have thought I'm insane. If I'd have told you there's people sitting at home posting videos on something and making millions of dollars doing it, you'd have thought I was crazy. Uh, 10 years, 15 years ago. And videos about nothing sometimes. About, well, a lot of times about nothing. But, you know, <laughs> there, there's revenue sources to make money in a lot of different ways in this world. And that's why I always say enjoy what you do. Don't, if you feel like you're working every single day, you're probably not going to enjoy your life as much. If you can do something that you actually love to do and you don't feel like you're working. Now, and I realize not everyone's going to be able to do that. The reality is it's not. But try as much as you can to gear your life towards enjoying what you do because you get a lot more out of it. An IT tech, a community organizer, but I think a lot of people, what they might not know is that you're also an entrepreneur. We were talking about how at one point, uh, you were actually saying that you've done a lot of random things in your yeah. life when you were thinking about it. And one of those was owning a nightclub in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, what, what brought that about? <laughs> yeah, I ask myself that question often. <laughs> Um, man, you know what? It's just it, opportunities. Uh, there's, you know, you and I talked about this earlier. I, I, I like to live my life without looking back and saying what ifs. An opportunity came to invest in, in this, oppor- you know, in the nightclub business. And I've, I've owned a couple of LA, I've, I've owned an LA tan, I've owned a restaurant. So I've done a lot of different things. Um, you know, I have the philosophy of throwing a lot of darts on the board and seeing what sticks, uh, which is kind of crazy now thinking about it. But um, yeah, just opportunities and when there's a chance to do something I always like to do it if it makes sense to me at the time you're not always right uh you know I think Edison was the perfect example and said this you you, I you know I made a hundred light bulbs and 99 I found 99 ways of not making a light bulb or something like that I don't know the exact quote but you know you only need one of them to succeed you can try 99 things and I found 99 ways of how not to make a light bulb until I did find that one light bulb right so so, I mean, what's some advice that you could give somebody who's looking to get into, you know, like franchising or owning their business based off of the experience that you've had? Definitely only do what you know. Um, the nightclub business to me was the prime example. It was not a business I knew. Um, even going to, it's really funny. My friends used to laugh at me when I got into the business because I didn't even go to nightclubs. <laughs> they used to have to drag me to go to nightclubs because I just didn't enjoy them. And they're like, how are you owning a nightclub? And it was kind of crazy. But um, do what you know, because at least you have the knowledge of being able to operate that business on your own. You know, even in the restaurant business, I'm not a chef. I'm not a cook. I got into the restaurant business. When my employees decided not to show up, I had to learn how to do it. And you don't want to learn by fire, you know, baptism by fire, right? They say that. And it's great. It's a great life experience. But I was lucky I did a lot of these things very young in my age. So I was able to bounce back. You know, if I tried to do them now and and they failed, I would be in a lot, you know, much more difficult situation. But because I was younger, I had the opportunity of uh, bouncing back easier. I think a lot of us do find ourselves in situations where, you know, I'm not much of a nightclub guy myself either, but you could 
sit there at a table paying $200 for bottle service. And you're like, man, I bet the guy who owns this place makes a killing. I can probably do this. Mm -hmm. But like you said, do what you know. Don't necessarily fall for the trap of like, ah, this place looks like uh, it prints money on a daily basis. Very true. Because in the nightclub business, everyone's stealing from you one Uh, way or another. So you need to learn how they do it so you keep them from doing it. (laughs) And one of the other things you're you're well known for, you're actually officially on imdb.com for this. For those not familiar with IMDb, you could pretty much look up any film, any actor, director, producer. You are the officially listed as the executive producer of the film Basem Tadrisha, which was a fantastic movie, by the way, (laughs) hilarious movie. Uh, What are some of the films that you've helped produce? So, uh, Assyrian ones, I'll I'll focus on those because that's kind of where it happened. Uh, uh, Ahmed Khamiani was the first movie we ever made. I think it was around 2001. And then three years in a row, we did Ahmed Khamiani, then Cost of Happiness, or Qaymat Khaduta in Assyrian, and uh, Cousins were the three movies we did. And Basam Titrisha was more of the venture coming back, you know, 15 years later, whatever, to, to try to make another Assyrian film. Um, but yeah, th- those are the four Assyrian movies um, that I, I executive produced. So take us back, 2001, paint the picture for us. Who brings this project to you? How does this conversation go? We're like, hey, we're trying to make a movie. Were you skeptical about that? Did you like the details that you were hearing? Just tell us all about it. It wasn't even like that. It's funny, my, my best friend, Martin, uh, Martin Khoshaba, who was the writer and director, uh, he was taking uh, classes. We both went to Northeastern, Northeastern Illinois University. He was taking classes um, in theater and movie making and stuff back back then. So because uh, amongst the many things I've done, I, I worked in sales. In the beginning of my life, I worked in sales. I worked at Apt Electronics. I've worked at these places for years in sales. So I always owned fun electronic equipment. I always had nice camcorders because it was work. You know, you find great deals on stuff. So one day Marty comes up to me and says, man, I need to shoot a project for school, like a three-minute, five-minute short movie. And can I borrow your camera? So yeah. So I gave him the camcorder and he's like, how do you work this thing? I'm like, I'll shoot it with you. So we spent two days in Martin's basement um, shooting this gory movie called The Other Side. Martin wrote. (laughs) It was all in English. And, uh, you know, we showed the movie at, uh, back then it was the Purple Hyatt in Lincolnwood. It was the Purple Hotel over here. We used to come to the bar here and watch games when we were younger. So they let us actually put a projector up and we showed the movie to like 30 of our friends. (laughs) And it was so much fun. We're like, this is great. Let's try it again. So we did another American movie, a little bit bigger. We put actually a budget of a couple thousand dollars for it back then. And uh, it was fun. I'm trying to, oh, that was called Sunshine 220. Okay. It was about a chat chatting thing to a guy and a girl chatting and the girl pretended she was something she wasn't. It was just a fun story. And uh, we did that one. We had like 300 people show up to our premiere. Uh, it was a free premiere. And we did it at the same place, but at the banquet hall at the Purple Hyatt down there. And it was a lot of fun. And then I came back to Marty. I said, Marty, growing up as a kid, I used to remember we had these Assyrian actors that used to do dramas. And um, I'm like, how do you feel about doing an Assyrian movie? Because the idea... I don't know if Martin's going to come back and kick me for this one, but I really think it was my idea to do a certain movie. <laughs> <laughs> so when he hears this, he's either going to say I'm full of it or he's going to you know, corroborate the story. Sure. But I just thought it would be kind of interesting to do it. Now, we didn't think it would be successful whatsoever. We just thought it'd be fun. Let's do one. Because I remember you know, um, there was an Assyrian movie out of Australia. Uh, I don't know if it was Betan. No, it was... Uh, I can't remember the name. I, I'm so, I, I want to say I own a copy of that on VHS, yeah, I, and I'm blanking on the I name know, as well. I know, and I'm blanking right now, and I feel bad because that was kind of the first movie ever for our, our community. So anyways, we decided to make uh, Ahmed Khamiani, 
Martin wrote the movie, and I reached out to the actors that I knew at the time, and we worked very closely with our, our very dear friends and mentors of ours, uh, Hormuz and Edmond Hassou from Assyrians around the world. Um, you know, granted, we were more the Martin was more the mo- you know movie maker. They helped us a lot with equipment for the first movie and stuff and they helped us shoot it and helped us do a lot of stuff martin wrote and directed he wasn't the guy behind the camera he wasn't the guy behind lighting and all that stuff so from that movie to this one obviously we've learned a lot and you know we've gone different routes but we worked with the uh assyrians around the world guys for our three first three movies and you know first three movies together and uh it was great but it really came about from there and, and you know one of the stories i'll always say which just just blows my mind every day and it's one of those kind of uh, highlights in my life, I look back and say, you know, first of all, when we were editing the movie, we were using a computer and we we're using Adobe Premiere. Program would crash on us Ooh. all the time. By the time we're literally five, six hours away from the premiere, and we don't even have a copy of the movie to show because it kept bombing out on us. This is literally one of those things that you look back at. We're having a heart attack. We don't even know how many tickets we've sold because we put tickets in. You know, because I was involved in the athletic club, right, back then, a lot of our friends from the club who've been involved doing parties for years helped us get to the, you know, get to the stores to put out tickets. So yeah. we didn't know what was going on. We had no idea if we sold 10 tickets or if we sold 1,000 tickets. We had no idea. And we're just like, we have no copy of the movie. We're getting ready to put this server the size of this table in a car, and we're going to take it to Niles West because that's where we're doing our premiere. Yeah. And we're going to try to plug it up and show the movie directly from there because we could finally, the grace of God, around 7 a.m., this is an all-nighter. The movie actually ends up coming out. And we ended up watching it. And uh, it, w- it was fine. It came out perfectly fine. And so we're pulling into Niles West and we're running late as hell. And, you know, we haven't even, we're, we're wearing t- suits. We're trying to be all, you know, producer-like. And, uh, you know, I'm putting on my tie and I'm looking and I'm seeing like a thousand people. Wow waiting and we're walking in and people are like we need tickets there's no more tickets it's sold out and we sold 1500 tickets wow. for the showing and uh yeah it was just it's one of those moments i'll, I'll never forget one of those moments i'd love to share with my kids one day because i'm sure they're not going to believe i made movies at all but was there a a second screening for that since we did, the yeah, demand was so yeah, oh yeah we did a second screening and um yeah another seven eight hundred people i mean we had I'd say a good 2,300 people wow. uh, see the first movie here. And then we did showings all over the country as well in, in California and so on. And um, it, was, uh, it was it was amazing. So I, I you have all that. this momentum building from yeah. this movie that you've done. And then did you guys think, did you and Marty think right away we need to do a second one? Absolutely. No questions asked. He went back. And within three years, we quadrupled the amount of movies the Assyrian community had, <laughs> in the history of the Assyrian community had within three years. I always laugh and say that because we had one movie and then yeah. we ended up with four yeah. after 2005 or six, whenever it was. And um, yeah, it, it was really exciting. It was fun. Um, you know, this situation in, in the Assyrian community kind of made it made the last movie a little more difficult. There was issues going on with the churches and a lot of stuff that was happening between this Assyrian Chaldean thing, and it kind of killed the third movie per se a little bit. Um, we were trying to make a movie that would. It, so we started thinking from a business perspective, right? Here's, here's the Assyrian community. We're a small, limited group of people. And this is when, when you're thinking about all this? 2004 or five, okay. right around then, 2004 and five. And, um, you know, we said, hey, there's a really big community of Chaldeans in Detroit. You know, virtually speaking the same language, we do a dialect of our language. Why don't we include some Chaldean actors in the movie so we can get to those markets? Which made sense. 
but there was also a big issue at that time with this old Chaldean Assyrian. And what we wanted to show was that here's a guy speaking a Chaldean dialect of, of Aramaic, and here's us speaking the Neo, Neo version of it. And they're fully understanding each other, and there's no difference between it because our culture is, is the same. And, you know, the idea was great, but it did well in Detroit, surprisingly enough. It did very well there. And uh, it did okay, you know, when it, with no complaints. People saw it. We, you know, thousands of people saw it here and, and that stuff. And um, so it was fun, but, you know, we realized, like every movie uh, maker realizes, the dynamic of, this, of society's, uh, you know, interests at any given moment dictate whether the movie's going to do well or not. Um, so, but it was fun. It was still a great experience. And when did the the meetings and the gear start spinning for the most recent film that came out a couple of years ago, Basanta Trisha? So that's actually it was ongoing for a while. Martin moved out to L.A. for a few years. He was there for four or five years, I think. And um, in the time, obviously, it would be very difficult to make it. But he started coming up with these ideas. And the reason why we did is because the internet, um, social media. Uh, with the first three movies we made, MySpace was the it was the extent of social media, and um, it really didn't help us in marketing. So there was no concept of marketing on MySpace. It was more of a here's my page, check me out kind of thing. So after that, we said, you know what? If we did pretty well with these movies going forward, you know, going back that way with with no social media, no Assyrian television really, even at the time nationally. Now we had A and B. We have a serious set that you know broadcasts. The Syrians around the world were doing their own thing. So we had more than one TV station. So we figured, you know what, let's give it a try. Let, let, this is a good time to try it. Uh, we'll do something really low budget because we didn't want to, you know, n- now in our lives it was, it's, it's harder because we're married and kids. When we're single, it wasn't a big deal. You know, you lose a little money, big deal, right? It wasn't that, yeah. it wasn't that hard to swallow. But convincing our wives we lost ten, twenty thousand dollars on a movie. <laughs> a lot more difficult nowadays, right? So, uh, anyways, we just something low budget, and we went out and did it. And um, I gotta say, it was disappointing. It just didn't get, uh, you know, I don't know if it was the movie people didn't resonate with, or whatever the case might have been, the storyline. I'm not sure, but we just noticed that. Um, well, we learned. We learned. We learned a lot about um, who's on social media, Assyrian wise. And what their intentions are. It's not necessarily to grow as a community. They're just there for the sake of being on social media, I think. It's kind of what I noticed. I'm not seeing that engagement. We have a lot of social media warriors out there, right? They're all out there fighting and yelling at everything, but not taking anything in the real world. No steps in the real world to um, better our community, per se. So with this one, uh, the digitizing of media and everything like that through iTunes... Did you feel that helped at all in getting the the film out to audiences? We thought it would, but unfortunately it didn't. Um, iTunes is a beast in itself. Working with Apple to get the movie out was a hundred times more difficult than we needed to be, uh, and it doesn't hit every market. There's every mar- There's I mean, we had to spend so much more money just in Australia because they had to go through their Motion Picture Association and they had to rate the movie. Um, uh, other countries wanted subtitles in their language. Ooh. We couldn't subtitle in every European language. It would, it would be an astronomical cost for us. So we did it that way. And then we decided to just put them out on our own website, AssyrianFilms.com, and just on, using Vimeo. Uh, you know, Vimeo, uh, was it VOD, uh, video on demand yeah. sort of yep. c- scenario. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we tried that, but... Um, one nice thing about it is we can always say there's an Assyrian movie on, on iTunes. That's Whether true. it's in anyone's market, in, in your market or not, it's out there in at least the U.S. and Australia. I markets. did feel that was a really cool thing. So, I mean, is there anything in the works that, you, that you'd be willing to divulge on here? I don't think I would make another movie. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, you remember earlier I was telling you about uh, moving forward. We hope that what we did, uh, making movies back then, would have sparked a new generation of Assyrian entrepreneurs into making more movies. Um, I haven't necessarily seen that. Um, you know, there was a movie or so made uh, back in back in Iraq, uh, in Iraq, um, and it came out here, but uh, it just not 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 to much fanfare. I don't know if it was a marketing thing, but it just it didn't resonate too too much with the with the public here so we just have to move on to bigger you know I, i'd like to say bigger and better things hopefully they would are would you like to at least see more filmmakers oh, go to. for it oh absolutely you know we, we we hoped we paved the way that was kind of the thing we like i i think i was telling you this on the phone I, you know i want people to be like if these idiots did it we can do it too <laughs> right i mean you know that that uh that um that challenge, like, hey, they did it, now it's our turn. So know? what's the ultimate advice you give to a kid at uh, Columbia uh, studying film who's Assyrian and wants to make a film, whether it's an Assyrian film or an American film or whatever they want to do? Yeah, honestly, do it. Just, just you know what, there, there's a difference between talking about doing something and, and actually doing it. Just find the means to make it happen. Um, where, where it makes sense for you, you know, financially. One of the reasons why we started focusing on Assyrian movies is we wanted to get better at the craft of making movies, right? Our goal wasn't to be Assyrian movie makers. Our goal was to be Hollywood movie makers. That was absolutely our goal from the get-go. But we had a built-in market that can keep, that can have us spend money and and at least make our money back while we're learning, right? Like that baptism by fire concept we had, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons, that, that was an important thing for us because we got to learn and make movies and work with a lot of different people. I mean, we worked with, we worked with SAG for the Illinois SAG here Association for the three movies and a lot of good actors. Uh, one of our actors, actually two of the actors we worked with that have done Hollywood movies out there. Um, Mike McNamara and uh, Crystal Dinha, the, the, the lady from Michigan. Um, so it was exciting, but uh, so I say just do it, man. I mean, it's Nike, right? Take the Nike just stance, do just, yeah, do it. just do it. Jump, man. Absolutely. This question actually comes straight from Steve. Um, out of all of the movies that you've produced, has there been one that's been the most rewarding? And if so, why? Uh,. Yeah, obviously, I'll, I'll say the first one, obviously, just because of the fact that it came to fruition. It came from this idea of making something. And uh, for the first time ever, watching months and months and months of work and, and, and so much money and people involved in putting this one thing together and having so many people watch it and enjoy it. There's one thing I'll never forget. Some lady, um, I, was, I believe it was in California, she came up to us after our second or third movie and said, you know, I want to thank you. I was like, well, thank you for coming. She's like, no, because um, me and my family do movie nights every Thursday. She goes, and it was really nice for the first time. We got to actually have an Assyrian movie at our movie night, which was kind of cool because it's, you start thinking, well, you know, it's interesting. You know, that's, they, we didn't think of it from that perspective. We didn't do it for that reason, but that was an exciting thing. As well as um, a father and son after Cost of Happiness. A father and son who hadn't talked to each other for years sent an email to Marty and said, you know, after we saw your movie, we realized that uh, you know it was stupid, and you know we're we're, wow. we're back in communication, and it's kind of crazy. As well as, by the way, I don't, I know most people don't know this, but the main actor, uh, Edwin, and um, God, I'm trying to remember her name now. It feels so silly. Uh, <laughs> the actress in the movie actually got married after the movie. Wow. Yeah, they got married after the movie after they met on set and got married. So. I mean, you mentioned you don't think you're going to do another one, but let's say hypothetically. 
somebody throws a hundred million dollars into your lap <laughs> and says, let's go make another Assyrian movie. What's it going to be about, and who is your lead actor and actress in this one? Ooh. Um, I'd, I'd like to venture out and make an Assyrian, like an epic Assyrian movie. I think more along the lines of, you know, what you would see in Hollywood, an, an epic movie like that. You know, they tried many years ago, Ben Aturi did, to make Gilgamesh. Um, and it, for whatever reason, it didn't pan out. I would want a more authentic Assyrian story. I know Gilgamesh... It's more Sumerian type, uh, you know, I don't want to get into that history because some people will argue and say, well, it's still our movie, whatever, uh, our story. <laughs> but um, I would probably lean more towards making something maybe, you know, Queen Shamiran, possibly, you know, especially nowadays with this whole, you know, women's movement to show that, hey, we started this women's movement thousands of years yes. ago. You know, here's a queen who who took her, you know, husband's uh Rain because I believe he died. I don't know the full story. I, I read a I read a synopsis about it. Someone had actually wrote a story oh, okay. about it, and it was really good. And um, you know, in a male dominated society back thousands of years ago, this woman took two nations under her arm and, and just and led them. And I think that'd be a really good story to tell. But you know, when you're talking about epic movies like that, you're talking about those kinds of budgets. So who, I think it would be something. Who like do you that. get to play in the movie? Who would I want to star as her? Even if hypothetically you could, let's say, take a, an established Hollywood actress and teach her how to speak Assyrian, yeah. who are you casting? Actually, I, honestly, I think I would do it in English. I, I don't know okay. if I'd want to do it in Assyrian because I, I'd want it to hit the masses, right? Okay. I mean, look at, you know, Troy is a really good example yeah. of the movie. I mean, you know, obviously, they, were, you know, they didn't speak English at the time. Right. I'm sure Achilles didn't speak English yeah. at the time. And uh, they made it an American movie. But who would I want? Um, man, that's a tough one. But, you know, Angelina Jolie comes to mind as, as possibly... Uh, you know, that, that's a good a one. I would pay to see that one. Yeah. No, I would. I would too. We've interviewed so many people who, um, understandably, are are very great in their one individual kind of singular field, uh, whether it's activism or medicine or or doing whatever it is they do. I think you're the first person that I've sat down with that that does so many different things, and it's crazy to me. So growing up, I want to go back to like childhood Billy. All right, and and ask you what some of your influences were to kind of set you on your current path and who some of the people were that, that influenced you growing up. My, my, my really good friend always laughs and says, you're a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, there's a lot of influences in my life. I think it's a culmination of a lot of people uh, influencing um, kind of where I, you know, where I am, where, where I'm at. Obviously, my family, my immediate family, my parents, um, I have a you know older brother who's like ten and a half years older than me, and um, uh, he was a big influence in my life because you know, he was older, someone I always looked up to, and I always wanted to be around. And if you see some of my friends, they're ten or eleven years older than me, so um, you know I tend to gravitate to them and, and learning from them because they were so much more experienced in life, right? You know, when you're six and they're sixteen, and when you're ten and they're twenty, you're obviously learning from from an older generation of people. So that was one, and I think just. You know, I always say this, and I was talking to someone before our podcast, and I said, you know, she's like, I regret not doing something. Uh, you know, you do everything in time. And even if you do it later in your life, it doesn't really matter because who you are today is based on everything you've done in the past. And I think that's a very important thing to realize. And never, people should never put themselves in a situation where they feel like, I wish I would have finished school earlier. I wish I would have done this earlier. It's never too late. Do what you want to do. 
Go after your goals, your visions, your dreams, whatever they might be. Don't regret not doing things. And that'll make you the person you are at that time. And I think it's a culmination of a lot of these things. You know, I went to Loyola Academy and, you know, Chicago public school kid going to a school where I had some friends whose parents were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And that was a motivating factor for me looking and saying, man, this guy's bathroom is bigger than my apartment. Yeah. You know, and it's very motivating uh, to see that. And uh, it, it, was, it was just another great experience in life that, you know, like, you know, if they can do it, why can't we do it? And it's always we. That, that's one thing that's actually one thing that's amazing about me. Oh, let, me let me not say that and sound right. <laughs> one thing that I'm amazed that I've developed this way is I'm more, um, I'm more of a unifier than I am a, a, a person who likes to do things individually. I like to. I like joint ventures. I like bringing people that can help complete things that I want to do. We're talking about macro and micro. Yeah. I'm more of a macro type person. I like to bring micro people around me. You know, making movies. I would have never made a movie without Martin because I can't write or direct. You know, and at the same time, Marty would have never made the movie because he would never have been able to not produce it, but be able to put the rest of the things in place. So we became, you know, pieces of a puzzle that were able to complete that. The athletic club is another example. There were so many pieces of the puzzle that came together. You know, I was their youngest president ever at 26. And, you know, talking about influence, that was, it's a very influential thing for me being a very young person in charge of an organization where I'm looking at people and they're in their 50s. And they're sitting there listening to me. And they're taking my advice. So these are all things that help develop me as, I, I hate using the term leader, but you become a leader, I think. Uh, you have the characteristics, and if you decide you want to do it, you become a leader because people will flock to the things that you're doing. Um, instead of creating these you know, fake leadership things, you, they flock to you, you become a leader of that thing. So um, just, just having all those people around me. I've worked with the Assyrian American National Federation for 18 years now. Um, you know, we talked about sports, the, the Assyrian Basketball League. I started almost 17, 18 years ago. Wow. One of the amazing things is we actually have a father-son duo now playing in a league. And I promised myself when that happens, I'd retire from basketball. <laughs> and I've retired since then because it was great. I was like, it'd be great to have a father and son, you know, play in the league. Yeah. So I can say that. And it's just all these really nice things. And you and I talking about it now bring them all back because, you know, you, you tend to forget in the daily grind of stuff. But it's, it's been a great life and it's truly been a blessing, honestly. It's just I've always felt like, you know, God's always, you know, put me in a direction where I needed to be, even though... I went through a time where I'm just, I couldn't imagine what's going on, like what I would do next. But there was always a door opening up. And as long as you're, you have the faith and just believe in going forward and doing it, I think um, you know, work will speak for itself. Billy, thank you so much for your time and giving up some of your Sunday to sit down and talk with us at the Assyrian Podcast. And when your multi-million dollar Assyrian flick goes live in production, you know who to reach out to for extras. 100%. You got it. <laughs> thank you, buddy. Thank you.